Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And in our last episode, which was requested by listener Stephen, I left off with AMD's history in 1986 when the company found itself reeling when Intel decided to cut ties. Up to that point, AMD had been in an agreement to act as a second source for Intel-designed chips. Intel would get a licensing fee, and AMD would be able to manufacture chips based on Intel's designs. But when AMD chips started to do better in performance tests than the Intel originals, things changed. Intel ended a 10-year agreement several years early, and the two companies would enter into a lengthy court battle that would ultimately go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But we've got a few years to get through before we get to that. So Intel had introduced the 8386 microprocessor in 1985, a year before it severed the agreement with AMD. The 386, as it was known, was a 32-bit microprocessor. It could run most older code designed for its predecessors and was capable of faster clock rates, meaning it could run more operations per second, and it had a greater data bandwidth, which means it could run operations on larger amounts of information than the earlier chips could. Intel and AMD had set the stage for creating the standard in computer processing, and now Intel was determined to stand alone. AMD, for its part, had been designing its own version of the 386, called the, get ready for it, AM386, but Intel's decision to end the agreement threw things into disarray. Intel argued that their agreement with AMD only covered the 8086 through the 8286 family of microprocessors, and that the 386 and later iterations were excluded. AMD obviously disagreed with this interpretation of their agreement, claiming that all x86 derivatives were covered under this 10-year plan that they had struck with Intel back in 1982. At this same time, Things were shifting in the PC market. You might remember from my episode about early computer systems that there used to be a ton of different types of PCs on the market in the late 70s and early 80s, each with its own hardware and operating system. The ones we think about today are Windows-based machines and Mac computers as far as personal machines are concerned. But Up through the early 1980s, the field was much more crowded. You had companies like Tandy, Commodore and Amiga, and others competing with Apple and IBM. However, by the mid-1980s, the field had thinned out significantly. IBM had secured valuable deals with corporations, becoming known as the computer of choice for office workstations. Apple maintained a more niche market of users interested in the creative power of the Macintosh. Everyone else sort of began to fade away. And this left the IBM PC and its compatible clones with the lion's share of the market. In fact, by the time Intel was trying to block AMD, the IBM PC market share had grown to about 84% of all personal computers. So this was a really big deal. AMD had helped cement the x86 chip as the go-to microprocessor for computers, and now it looked like Intel was going to run away with the whole thing. Things were starting to smell 
a little anti-competitive. AMD did still have an agreement to the underlying instruction set for the x86 family of processors. So in some respects, AMD was still in the game, but Intel wasn't going to share the actual physical design of the 386 microprocessor with AMD. So the engineers at AMD set out to reverse engineer the 386 and build their own version of it while the legal battle continued in the courts. Reverse engineering alone is a, a pretty fascinating subject. The basic concept is fairly intuitive. You take a technology and you examine it closely and you figure out what makes it tick. How does the tech actually do whatever it does? Then you go back and you build your own version of that technology based upon your understanding of how the starting example worked. So you're not starting off with some sort of blueprint or set of plans or instructions. You're sussing it out on your own based on existing instances of the technology. So it's a bit like detective work. Between reverse engineering and the legal battles, it would be years before AMD could bring its own 386 chips to market. The company began releasing its version starting in 1991. And once again, AMD's version of Intel's chips were clocking in at a faster clock rate than the competition. Intel's 386 chips maxed out at 33 megahertz, whereas AMD's could hit 40 megahertz. The legal battles continued, and AMD began to invest in designing its own microcode for chips. Intel's next microprocessor was, predictably, the 8486, and AMD created its own version, the AM486. Some AM486 chips had Intel microcode from the x86 agreement, and others had AMD microcode, making it a little confusing. And all of them were outpacing Intel's version of the same chip. Even the top-of-the-line microprocessor in Intel's 486 line was left behind. The fastest 486 from Intel had a top clock speed of 100 megahertz. AMD's version was able to reach speeds of 120 megahertz. Now, this was in 1994 when that legal battle I talked about finally concluded. The courts found in favor of AMD, granting the company some royalty-free use of some of Intel's patents and awarding AMD millions of dollars in the process. But the whole endeavor had taught the engineers at AMD a valuable lesson. While they had won this battle, there was no guarantee that things would remain stable between Intel and AMD. So the company did release another x86-derived chip. This one was called the AMD 5x86, or 5x86, if you wanted to think of it that way. And you may be thinking, huh, I never heard of a 586 computer. I was pretty sure that Intel switched over from 486 to Pentium. And you would be right. The AMD 5x86 chip was based off the same architecture as the AM486 microprocessor, but it did manage an even faster clock speed. Out of the box, it was 130 megahertz, but original equipment manufacturers, or OEMs in the biz, could get an even faster version that maxed out at 150 megahertz. Now, according to Tom's Hardware, a website which is, by the way, a great resource if you ever want to learn everything there is to know about just about any computer component you can think of, the AM486 and the 5x86 processors also moved the floating point unit, or FPU, 
over to the central processing unit, or CPU itself. Up until then, it had been customary to have separate CPUs and FPUs that would connect to each other through the motherboard. So I guess it's time to give a quick explanation about what these things actually mean. The CPU, I'm sure you've all heard of, right? It's sort of the head manager of your computer. It executes basic instructions. Uh, in the event that the instructions require the use of a specialized chip, like a graphics processing unit, also known as a GPU, the CPU can delegate those tasks to the appropriate hardware. It's a high-functioning component of a computer. We often refer to it as the brains of the computer, but really, it's just calling the shots at the highest level. The floating point unit carries out instructions on what are called floating point numbers. A floating point number is a workaround for a particular problem, which is how a computer represents real numbers. The range of real numbers is infinite, but a computer can't handle that. A computer has a limited capacity. So programmers use floating point numbers, so-called because the decimal point has no fixed number of digits that have to appear before or after it. This allows programmers to represent numbers separated by many orders of magnitude. You can have incredibly large numbers paired with incredibly small numbers using this approach. Uh, typically, you would use a variant of scientific notation for those really big or really small numbers. However, this does mean that much of the work computers do happens as approximations rather than as precise calculations. And this introduces the possibility of error. The more you... Uh, are approximating something, the less accurate or precise it's going to be, particularly as you perform more calculations based on previous approximations. As these approximations start to add up, you can potentially get further and further away from a correct or true answer. But never mind that. That's a discussion for a different episode. Now, after the 486, Intel came out with the first Pentium processor. So why did Intel change things up? Why did Intel go from 486 to Pentium? Because the Pentium still followed the x86 architecture and instruction set, and spoiler alert, so do today's computers. So why would Intel choose Pentium instead of sticking with the naming convention it had created? Why wasn't it the 586? Well, the main reason was, as I'm sure many of you have guessed, that companies like AMD were the cause of this, Intel decided because of AMD. Intel couldn't trademark a number. Intel couldn't have 586 trademarked. You can't just trademark a basic number like that. So if it had stuck with the numbering system, AMD could then come out with its AMD 586. And with its reputation for outpacing Intel's comparable chips, that could hurt Intel's sales. But Pentium? That was different. Because Pentium was a name. You can trademark a name. And that's what Intel did. It trademarked the term Pentium, which prevented AMD and other competitors from using that name on their own chips. So now it added a marketing concern for these competitors. How would they be able to market their own chips and compare them against Intel's chips without using a trademarked name that they did not have the rights to? It was kind of throwing a monkey wrench into things. Now, the way companies got around this was to include a number that they referred to as PR, which essentially stood for Pentium Rating. The number next to the PR designation would indicate the comparable Pentium clock speed that the chip in question would be most like. So if you came out with a microchip 
and you gave it a PR rating of 100, what that tells the end consumer is that the chip you have put out is equivalent to an Intel Pentium processor that has a clock speed of 100 megahertz. So it's kind of a way of getting around the fact that they could not call their own chips their variants of the Pentium processor. Now, it was clear that Intel was going to put up a fight and resist as much as it could. It would make little sense for AMD to depend solely upon being a second source for Intel chips, particularly when Intel wasn't really interested in cooperating fully. And so AMD began work on designing its own x86-based microprocessor, which would be released in 1996, and it became known as the AMD K5. Well, why was it called the K5? Well, by AMD's reckoning, it represented the fifth-generation microprocessor family that AMD had built, the other four being second-source Intel chips. But the K5 was a totally new architecture that was based on the x86 instruction set. So why the K? Well, because K is also the letter that starts the word kryptonite, the substance that could bring down Superman. And I think we can all guess who was Superman in this particular scenario. AMD designed the K5 entirely in-house, and it was the first x86 processor from AMD to have architecture designed by the AMD team itself, as opposed to either following Intel's detailed instructions to make a clone of their chips, or through reverse engineering an existing Intel microchip. The K5 copied some elements from the earlier AM29000 microprocessor that was a RISC or RISC microchip the company made a few years earlier. I talked about that in the previous episode. And I think that was a pretty good choice. It gave them a starting point to work from, and they were able to really build on that and make a success out of it. The K5's design was a little bit complicated, and that placed limits on how much clock speed AMD could get out of it. But at the same time, the AMD engineers had made the operations really efficient. So while it might have a technically lower clock speed than a competing microprocessor, this increased efficiency helped balance things out so that in the end result, it seemed like the K5 was actually faster than its counterparts that technically had higher clock speeds. Yes, the other microprocessors could run more operations per second, but K5's efficiency was such that it was able to make up for that lost ground. Now, when we come back, I'll talk more about AMD's experiences in the 1990s and beyond. But first, let's take a quick break. AMD would follow up the K5 with a microprocessor called the, now wait for it, the K6. But the K6 wasn't designed by AMD engineers, nor did it follow the K5 architecture. Instead, AMD acquired another microchip manufacturing company called NextGen, N-E-X-G-E-N. NextGen was getting ready to release a CPU it called the NX686. But then AMD swooped in, bought up NextGen, and then repurposed the as-yet-unreleased NX686 to become the K6. 
AMD marketed it as an alternative for Intel's Pentium 2 processor, claiming that for less money, you could get the same level of performance. And that was mostly true, though the Pentium 2 had some advantages over the K6, namely a better math coprocessor, or FPU. At this point, the K6 and the variants I'll talk about in a second were still compatible with Intel-designed motherboards. The K6 was also cheaper than the Pentium 2 chips, and so the K6 became a popular choice for both OEMs and people building their own machines. AMD would follow up the K6 with the K6-2 in 1998 and the K6-3 in 1999. The K6-3 paired 256 L2 cache memory on the CPU die in an effort to speed up processing and increasing the amount of data the CPU could access at any given time. The K6-2 was phenomenally successful, so much so that some analysts estimated that 70% of the under $1,000 PC market in 1998 had AMD K6-2 chips powering them. So if you were building a computer on a budget and you wanted to get the most oomph for your dollars, chances are you were going with AMD. The company would also release the K6-2 Plus and the K6-3 Plus in 2000. These were microprocessors meant specifically for the mobile market, and they'd be the final entries in the K6 line of CPUs. Meanwhile, Jerry Sanders, whom you might remember from the first episode, he was the first president of AMD. He was a co-founder and at this point was the CEO of the company was riding high. He predicted astronomical share prices for the company in the near future. He continued the company's practice of building fabrication plants at a breakneck pace. He was building plants to manufacture microprocessors and semiconductor chips all over the world. AMD had been incredibly aggressive in building and staffing these fabrication facilities in order to meet the demand for microprocessors and actually to anticipate the next demand for them. And Sanders had adopted a reportedly lavish lifestyle, maintaining an office in Beverly Hills, which is pretty darn far from Silicon Valley and the headquarters of AMD. I guess he never really gave up his dream of going into the recording industry. But a lavish lifestyle might be fine if things continued to go well for the company, and sadly, that would not be the case. Sanders' spending also seemed to trickle its way into the corporate culture of AMD overall, with executives and high-ranking Salesforce professionals spending greater amounts of money to curate an image of luxury and sophistication. Spending was getting out of hand. And a lot of that spending had to do with those fabrication facilities. According to Atik Raza, who had led NextGen before AMD had acquired that company, and then later became the president and chief operating officer, or COO, of AMD, Sanders was in a bad habit of building fabrication facilities too far in advance, at least according to Raza's uh, analysis. His perspective, that is Raza's perspective, was that the company should hold off building new facilities until the need was there. Sanders was building them ahead of the game, but that would mean that AMD was constantly raising money to build out the next facility in advance of any revenue it was generating, and if the industry were to ever dip, then it would leave AMD overextended. So Raza wanted to take 
a different route. He wanted to use revenues from current successes to fuel expansion on an as-needed basis. In other words, you don't need to go out and build a new fabrication plant until the demand requires you to do it. Raza, who at one time had been viewed as a potential successor to Sanders, found himself in direct disagreement with the founder, and he would actually leave AMD in 1999, reportedly after a massive falling out with Sanders, with whom he would never speak again. Now, his successor was a guy named Hector Ruiz, who had up to that time been heading up a division over at Motorola. Ruiz was first wary of taking this job. It was a more technically oriented industry than he had been used to, and he knew about Sanders and his reputation of alienating senior-level staff. And he saw that there had been a string of chief operating officers, several of whom were rumored to be uh, groomed as the heir apparent to AMD, who had subsequently left the company. But he figured that Sanders might have issues relinquishing control to others, that this could cause issues, but Sanders was still a very impressive person. AMD was an impressive company, so Hector decided to take the job. Then Jerry Sanders would retire in er the early 2000s, and Ruiz would take over the company, and he began to clean house. He got rid of several top executives who had been around for quite some time in the Sanders era, and he started to bring in new people, new talent. So, Ruiz also saw that the market was changing. And while AMD was being innovative in CPUs and other microchips meant for personal computers, it was really making most of its profits from selling flash memory, not CPUs. And so he started to refocus the company to that endeavor. But he also found that AMD was holding an odd place in the market. Ruiz would write a book about his experiences, stating that Sanders had created this sort of weird paradox in AMD. Because Sanders had a real can-do attitude, a, a never-say-die approach to business. But at the same time, no one in the company ever seemed convinced that AMD could really go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Intel. That AMD would always be a tiny company compared to Intel that could never really take over as the leading microchip manufacturer in the industry that that was just sort of this underlying philosophy at AMD. And it's possibly because AMD had built its business largely on being a second-source chip company. So Ruiz tried to change things, directing AMD's efforts at not just flash memory, but also developing premium processors for stuff like internet servers, which were just starting to become a serious thing at the time. Now, around that same time, AMD and Intel faced off again in courtrooms. This time, it was in the European Union. AMD complained to the European Commission that Intel was engaging in anti-competitive behavior, violating the law, primarily through what AMD described as abusive marketing campaigns. AMD even tried to use legal means to secure documents from a separate case against Intel. This one was brought against Intel by a company called Intergraph, but then the Intergraph case eventually settled out of court. And things were obviously still very choppy between AMD and Intel, despite the fact that they still had this cross-licensing agreement. The next chip from AMD, the K7, better known as the Athlon processor, changed things up again. Now, the details get pretty technical, but an easy thing to understand is that the company was able to push clock rates up to 1 gigahertz. 
AMD also began to manufacture its own motherboards, anticipating that the day might come when compatibility with Intel's motherboards would come to an end. So hey, what the heck is a motherboard? I've, I mentioned it a couple times in this episode. A motherboard is just a printed circuit board. It's sort of the highway system for information inside a computer. The motherboard typically has connectors into which you can plug other circuits, like a CPU is a circuit, so you can plug a CPU into a motherboard, or a GPU, a graphics processing unit. The motherboard provides the physical connections between all these different components so that these circuits can send proper commands to the right places. Now, not all CPUs, or GPUs for that matter, are compatible with all motherboards. Motherboards can accept certain types of CPUs and not others. And that's one of the reasons it's really important to research first before you set out to build your first computer. It's entirely possible to pick up sweet components that look great on paper, but ultimately won't work together because they're incompatible. So AMD set out to build its own computer platform. But in this case, Intel was able to outperform AMD. While AMD's processors were blazing, the motherboard chipset as a whole wasn't quite able to match Intel's 440BX component. Still, it showed that AMD was going to push hard to compete with Intel. AMD also introduced a new line of chips designed for entry-level machines. These were running on a similar architecture as the Athlon processors, but at a lower clock speed. They called the new line of processors Duron, and they competed against Intel's Celeron line of processors meant for the same market. AMD upgraded the Athlon family steadily year over year with names like Thunderbird, Palomino, Thoroughbred, and Barton. With each chip, AMD built upon what it had learned from the previous generation. The component sizes got smaller, uh, Thoroughbred and Barton were built using a 130 nanometer process, and the clock speeds were climbing past 2 gigahertz. AMD was optimizing the architecture for memory access, things were going pretty smoothly. And then, AMD dropped a bombshell. The company that had built a business out of being a second source chip manufacturer actually beat Intel to the punch by releasing the first consumer-oriented 64-bit x86 processor, the Athlon 64. Now, I've been explaining a lot of basic computer concepts here, so why not include 64-bit versus 32-bit? So, the consumer-focused processors up to that point were 32-bit processors. That means the processors were able to work with data units that were 32 bits wide. Now remember, a bit is a single unit of information. It can be either a zero or a one. Eight bits is a byte or an octet, and 32 bits would be four octets wide. A 32-bit system can handle a range of two to the 32nd power number of values. So if we want to describe all the values that a 32-bit number can describe, and we start with the number zero, we would go all the way up to 4,294,967,295. That's the range of values a 32-bit system can handle. Now, as the name implies, a 64-bit system can handle a data width of 64 bits. And you might be tempted to think that that means it can handle twice as much data 
as a 32-bit system, but that's not how binary works. A 64-bit system can handle a value range of 2 to the 64th power of values, which is more than 18 quintillion values. That is a very big number, much, much bigger than the 8.5 billion or so that would be twice the 32-bit range value. So you're not talking about doubling, you're talking much, much larger than that. So a 64-bit system can perform many more calculations per second. It can also support more RAM. A 32-bit system maxes out at 4 gigabytes of RAM, or 2 to the 32nd power bytes of memory. A 64-bit system would max out, at least in theory, at 18 exobytes of RAM, which I can't describe as anything other than a crap ton of random access memory. But... 64-bit CPUs can't quite reach that theoretical limit, and they max out in the terabyte scale, not the exobyte scale. Still, that's a lot more memory than 32-bit systems can handle. Now, 64-bit systems had been around since the 1960s, but had only seen use in academic settings and internally in various companies. No one had yet made a 64-bit processor for the general public before AMD. And Microsoft released a 64-bit version of Windows that such processors could leverage. And just to be clear, a 32-bit system can't run 64-bit software. But most 64-bit systems can run either a 32-bit or a 64-bit version of operating systems. Now I've got some more to say about what AMD has been up to. But first, let's take another quick break. AMD, for the first time, had been the first to market with a microchip innovation. This led to Intel licensing the 64-bit instruction set from AMD. Ah, how the tables have turned. Now, Intel, so used to being the entity to define standards, was instead having to follow the lead of the upstart company. Now, never mind that both Intel and AMD had been around since the late 1960s, and AMD was really just a year younger than Intel was. I can only imagine things were tense in some of those meetings over at Intel headquarters. And AMD wasn't done knocking the socks off computer nerds like me. In 2005, the company released the Athlon 64X2 microprocessor, which was the first x86 dual-core processor. Now, these days, multi-core processors are the norm for many computer systems and even handheld devices. But this was brand new for con the consumer market back in 2005. So what the heck is a dual-core or multi-core processor? Now, I always like to use the analogy of a math class that has one superstar pupil and then a bunch of smart math students who don't quite measure up to superstar status. The superstar pupil represents a single-core CPU that is significantly powerful. The smart math students represent a multi-core processor. Each individual core of this multi-core processor is less powerful than the super-strong single CPU. But collectively, those students can tackle some problems and solve them faster than the superstar. And we refer to those types of problems as being parallel problems, in that the cores are all executing operations in parallel with each other rather than in sequence. So here's the example. A math teacher hands out a pop quiz. The superstar has to answer eight questions on the quiz, all eight. 
The smart math students, of which there are eight, must each answer just one of those questions. So student one gets question one, student two gets question two, and so on. So who finishes first? Now, while the superstar might get through a couple of problems before any of the classmates have finished his or her individual problem, ultimately the class is going to finish first. They solved the test in parallel, each taking one part of the problem. So even though the superstar is technically better at math than they are, they can't uh, answer those questions in sequence as quickly as the group can in parallel. Now, it's important to note that not all computational problems are parallel in nature. So for those problems, a really powerful single-core processor is going to do better than the multi-core approach. And AMD's early dual-core processor couldn't work on the same thread at all. But one core could work on a thread of operations, while the other core worked on unrelated computational problems, and that sped things up overall. Both the 64-bit consumer processor and the dual-core innovation were phenomenal achievements in the world of consumer computers. AMD, while never quite catching up to Intel's marketing with the whole Intel inside thing, was proving itself to be a capable and competitive player in the space, at least on a technological level. Business-wise, things were a bit less peppy. AMD was producing more chips than it could sell, and that was probably part of that whole crazy fabrication plant strategy Sanders had pursued in the 90s. They were literally making more chips than they had orders for. In 2001, AMD posted a net loss of $61 million. But the following year, it was incredible. It was a loss of $1.3 billion. In 2003, it was another $274 million loss. This is not a trend you want to see continue. Now, while the company was introducing innovations, it was still battling its nemesis Intel in the courtrooms. AMD brought another anti-competitive suit against Intel in 2004-2005, this time in the United States. The complaint was 48 pages long and accused Intel of using a monopolistic approach to strong-arm companies to work with Intel rather than with AMD. At this point, AMD had several lawsuits against Intel pending in various courts, and in 2009, Intel bargained a settlement agreement with AMD. Intel executives promised that their company would abide by a list of rules to avoid anti-competitive practices. Now, according to CNET, the settlement included a payout to AMD to the tune of $1.25 billion. Woof. That certainly can help in an era where the company is losing money through sales. Intel also would introduce its famous TikTok strategy, in which the company would first design a new microchip architecture, typically by reducing the size of the individual components from the previous generation's architecture, and then cramming more components onto a single chip. So in other words, you say, let's take the design from the last generation of microchips, make everything smaller, add more to it, and release that. Then they would follow this up with the talk part of the cycle. They would dedicate research and development to find out how to best optimize the new smaller components to create a new architecture that makes the best use out of that. So the tick is the new architecture the, or the new, the, the smaller components, and the talk was the new optimization of that. Each generation of chips represented either a tick or a talk. This helped reduce risk and expenses on Intel's research and development and helped the company mount a counterattack against AMD. 
AMD got aggressive in the wake of their innovations. In 2006, the company acquired a graphics card company called ATI Technologies Incorporated for more than $5 billion. ATI had launched in the mid-80s in Canada and had become known for their graphics processing units. And for a while, AMD would market graphics processing cards under the ATI brand name. In fact, in many ways, ATI continued to perform as if it were a subsidiary company and not a true part of AMD, something that in hindsight critics have suggested was a problem. According to an Ars Technica article that was titled uh, The Rise and Fall of AMD, highly recommend you read that, by the way. It's a two-part article and it's fantastic. People within the company tended to gravitate toward either the CPU side of the business or the GPU side of the business, and both sides were competing over the same set of resources. Now, competition within a single company isn't always a great thing, and it led to tension within AMD as well as delays in product development. AMD's CPU quality was starting to slide as well. The Opteron processor called Barcelona didn't ship on time, and when it did finally come out, it had a bug in the design that, when fixed, slowed the chip's performance speed by about 10%. A few years later, the bulldozer processor had similar issues. In retrospect, some engineers fault the acquisition for dividing the focus of the company and a lack of an overall roadmap for being the reason that the company was reeling a little bit. Meanwhile, PC sales in general were slowing down as the world began to shift more toward mobile computing. AMD found itself in choppy waters again. Ruiz managed to take care of one big problem, the fabrication facilities that were making far too many chips for AMD to sell. He arranged a deal with a group of investors from Abu Dhabi to sell off AMD's fabrication plants. The idea was that AMD would negotiate production contracts with this new company, and that new company could also accept fabrication contracts from other manufacturers, since the production capacity for all the fabrication plants exceeded what AMD needed. Not long after that, Ruiz would step down as CEO. Dirk Meyer, who had worked on the design of AMD's K7 chip, became the new CEO. Oh, and remember when I said AMD and Intel settled that lawsuit in 2009? One reason AMD might have agreed to come to the table with a settlement was that Intel lawyers were claiming the agreement between AMD and Intel to cross-license the x86 instruction set was only valid if AMD was both the designer and the fabricator of the chips. But now AMD was outsourcing fabrication, and that, according to Intel's lawyers, was in violation of the agreement. So it's possible AMD came to the table to negotiate a settlement in order to avoid a judgment on that point. Meyer would serve as CEO from 2008 to 2011. He was effectively removed from the position by the AMD board. Analysts at the time were a bit surprised. Meyer had been focusing on the traditional CPU market and making AMD competitive there with plans to address the mobile market a little bit later further down the road. He wanted to get the CPU thing right first and then switch over to mobile. Now, it's possible that the board objected to that strategy and wanted someone who would lead the company to compete in the mobile space more aggressively, as that was the perceived area for growth. This was an era where it became clear that mobile was going to be the future of computers. After a CEO search, Rory Reed was selected to lead the company. Reed diversified AMD's approach beyond the PC market. And Reed was able to guide the company into entering new markets while lowering operating costs. 
In 2014, he would step down as CEO. And he said that that was the plan the whole time, that he was there just as sort of an interim CEO to make some business level changes to AMD and get the company on the right track. But he didn't have a deep background in engineering. AMD's next and current CEO did. And that is Lisa Su. Since the 1990s, Lisa Su has worked in the semiconductor industry. She started over at Texas Instruments on the technical staff. She's also worked at IBM and Freescale Semiconductor before she joined AMD. She served as the chief operating officer before being named the new president and CEO of the company. And under her leadership, AMD has done rather well. In 2017, the company had a revenue of $5.33 billion. That was a 25% growth over the previous year. Also, and remarkably, 2017 would be the first year that AMD would post a full year of profitability, meaning there were no quarters where they posted a loss. While the company would come out profitable in previous years, it always had quarters that had a loss in those years. So things really had changed. Now, just a few years ago, lots of people were ready to write off AMD. The company was posting massive losses. It had cut back jobs. It looked like it had overextended itself. It looked like it was just not going to measure up against the competition. And the product quality appeared to be slipping. But more recently, things have seemed to turn around. And perhaps we've yet to see the greatest achievements from a company that was able to shock the world by beating Intel to the punch. Who knows what they might do next? Well, that wraps up these episodes about the history of AMD. Thanks again, Stephen, for sending in that request. I greatly appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed learning more about this semiconductor and microprocessor company. Uh, they are fascinating. They continue to be fascinating. So uh, that's that for that story. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, a technology, maybe a personality in tech, Whatever it may be, why not send me an email about it? The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You're going to find an archive of all of our previous episodes, links to our social media presence, as well as a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show. And we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.